Standard Issue for all women. Welcome to episode 66 of the Standard Issue podcast. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've seen three cocks already today. I feel like you're going to need to... <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Qualify yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I was on the train. It was really busy because half term and I had to sit in the chair near the toilet and it was one of those toilets that, that come round on an automatic, mm-hmm. you know, the... The slidey ones. The slidey ones. Mm-hmm. And on three separate occasions, men went in there, didn't lock them, and somebody else came along and pressed the button and the door opened. And I saw everything on three separate occasions. That is sort of gross. It's alarming, isn't it? Mm. Okay, well, moving swiftly on. (laughs) I'm Jen Offord, and I can't stop thinking about your water consumption, Hannah. I know, it's amazing. I know, and uh, stay tuned for further for further uh, information about my water consumption. In this week's podcast, I talked to comedian and actor Helen Lederer about why she launched the Comedy Women in Print Prize to improve support and exposure for female comedy writing. Hallie Rubenhold talks to us about her new book, The Five, which tells the untold story of the victims of Jack the Ripper. I am wanging on about the FA Cup in Jenny of the Blocks. And I do Disney's Lilo and Stitch. One more to go, one more to go. (laughs) But first, the jam's gone mouldy, but the kids are all right. It's the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Like a Trump speech, but fact-checked before it's said out loud. What's happening in the world of Brexit, I hear you ask? Well... Who the fuck knows, but we're stockpiling body bags, which I think everyone can agree is not a good look. As fears grow about how we're going to stay fed if we find ourselves crashing out with no deal, the Prime Minister shared a tip about making the most of jam. And I paraphrase, scrape off the mouldy old shit and tuck into the nice stuff underneath. If only the same worked with Parliament. Speaking of which... This weekend saw the announcement of a second People's Vote March on Saturday, March the 23rd. Dust off your signs, people. You know, the um, key to not getting jam mouldy is you don't want to get the butter in the (laughs) top tip. Is that what it is? Top tip, yeah. It's when you get the butter in there. Because otherwise it's just sugar, isn't it? It doesn't really go mouldy. You're welcome. And just when you thought it was safe to assume they were taking part in a cycling proficiency test, those yellow vesters are back in the news. The high-vis cloaked pro-Brexit campaigners found themselves in hot water with the police after violent clashes took place as they took to the streets of Westminster once more. The protesters were campaigning for, seriously, a no-deal Brexit. (laughs) Well done, lads. (laughs) An end to immigration. Oh, easy. And also an end to fake news and also justice for three boys killed by a drink driver in London last year. You'd think that wouldn't be linked, but it actually is. Five protesters, Terence Dwyer, David Coppin, Sarah Penton-Stewart, Michael O'Sullivan and Robert Walker were charged with assault on an emergency worker and Mia Levy was charged with obstructing police. Still, we won't have any emergency workers soon if these cocks get their way, so it's not all bad news, is it? Oh no, hang on. (sighs) Brexit continues to take its toll on the unity of both the Labour Party and the Tories, although I care considerably less. About the latter. Prominent Tory Remainers, including Heidi Allen and Dominic Grieve, face votes of no confidence by their local party associations 
And on Monday, seven Labour MPs walked out of their party, citing reasons including a failure to oppose both Brexit and anti-Semitism. This was literally a few hours ago, so it's too soon to say much else, but I'd like to leave you with the words of our friend, the political commentator Aisha Hazarika, and I quote, Very sad day for Labour will significantly harm chances of a Labour government. But if you tell people to F off enough, they might just do it. It's just sad, really, isn't it? But anyway, want to know something else we won't have much of in the post-Brexit wastelands? Yeah? (laughs) Yeah. Porsches, mate. (laughs) The German car manufacturers have warned UK customers they may see price rises after Britain leaves the EU. Just when I could afford one, eh? To the tune of 10%. So that would see the price of your cheapest Porsche 911 rise from roughly 93 grand to 102 grand. So um, that's not affordable anymore, is it? (laughs) No, we're fucked. Okay, fair enough. You'd be forgiven for thinking, finally, an outcome of Brexit that's actually bad for the profiteering wankers that caused us to wind up here. Except Porsche is owned by Volkswagen, which would not comment on whether other brands it owned would be subject to the same surcharge. Interestingly enough, I have a Skoda, which is also Also, made by mm. Volkswagen, and it needs some work done on it. Not immediately, but soon, and so I put it in the garage on Wednesday because I'm definitely putting it in before Brexit because at the very least it's going to become more expensive afterwards. Crack the fuck on. Yeah. Not content with screwing young people over with Brexit, some of our most prominent pro-leave voices took some time off from promoting a national Captain Oates moment (laughs) where we freeze to death in a noble but ultimately futile gesture to hate the kids all over again. When thousands of schoolchildren ditch lessons to stage a protest over a lack of action on climate change. Theresa May found the time to criticise the youngsters for causing, and I quote, disruption. Julia Hartley Brewer, who I'm rather at a loss to describe if I'm honest, said, and I quote, pathetic virtue signalling parents should be fined. And Toby Young, the human equivalent to the sensation fire festival goers got when they saw that cheese sandwich in a plastic <laughs> tub called the children idiotic and self-important. The irony. The fucking irony. It reminded me of the video on YouTube of where Michael Owen takes penalty shots at a (laughs) 13-year-old and goes, every time he scores. And then Neville Southall goes, well done, Michael, he's 13. (laughs) (laughs) You're fucking grown-ups. What are you doing? Anyway... The BBC was heavily criticised last week after it was revealed the corporation did not provide advice relating to abortion on its Action Line website. Following an episode of Call the Midwife shown earlier this month in which a woman died as a result of an illegal abortion, those looking up information on the site, as advertised at the end of the programme, found there was none and flagged it to women's reproductive rights organisations. Shockingly, when asked why, the BBC said the provision of such information was too contentious and could imply the BBC supported one side or another. That's right, the apolitical BBC did not want to imply support for a legal medical procedure. While praising the sensitivity with which the popular BBC series had dealt with the storyline, a spokesperson for the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, Catherine O'Brien, said it's hard to imagine how they came to this completely outdated position because it's completely at odds with the views of wider society. Abortion is the most common gynaecological procedure in this country. It's not contentious, it's a vital part of women's health care. However, 
After a number of complaints, the BBC was forced to back down, adding links to the relevant NHS page for England, Scotland and Wales. A BBC spokesperson said there continues to be debate about abortion in the UK. The Abortion Act of 1976 reformed the law relating to abortion but does not apply in Northern Ireland, where the framework for abortion therefore differs from other parts of the UK. Given these differences, we've added a direct link to the relevant NHS page which has information on abortion for England, Scotland and Wales. Yeah, not good enough, BBC, quite frankly. They have politicised themselves by refusing to... Absolutely. And it's not... If it's the law, there's not two sides to it. No. It's the fucking law. Yeah. But on that bombshell. Yeah, would you want want a bit of good related news? I certainly would, Hannah. Well, on Thursday, the vitally important abortion support network announced it was expanding its services to women in Malta and Gibraltar. If you're a regular listener, you'll know who the Abortion Support Network is. But if you're not, all you need to know is that they help women at what is often the most upsetting and dangerous time in their life. And now they can help more of them. If you'd like to help them help more of them, you can chuck them some readies over at asn.org.uk. Thank you. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where writing a strongly worded email to Mark Zuckerberg just isn't enough to combat the sexist ills of the internet generation. Social networking site Facebook found itself in trouble again last week after it emerged that internet giant was even more creepy than we'd ever anticipated. I mean, seriously, hasn't it got enough on its plate? (laughs) No? Belgian security researcher Inti de Sucolaire found that it was possible to search for photos of female friends via the network, but not male friends. And further still, another Twitter user reported that the Facebook search bar prompts users to search for those female friends in bikinis, which news site The Independent said it confirmed in carrying out tests of its own. And in fact, I had a little squiz myself this morning, and the top results when you whack photos of my in the search bar are 1. Photos of my female friends. Two, photos of my female friends in bikinis. Three, photos of my female friend's bikini for the, uh, for the illiterate amongst us. And four, photos of my female friends at the beach. Meanwhile, if you type photos of my male friends, you literally get no suggestions. But before you get your placards out and rock up at Silicon Valley, it turns out it's not just Facebook with a problem here. According to the networking site, Automatic suggestions in the search bar are based on recent and indeed popular search terms because men. Fucking hell. Yep. Oh, hey, Birmingham. Get you looking all capital of the Midlands. And we will be in you on March the 24th for a cracking event at the Town Hall as part of Podfest Birmingham, where we're joined by Jess Phillips MP, Beverly Knight and the boss, Sarah Millican. More info and indeed tickets can be found at sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. But you better be sharpish as they are selling damn fast. Hello, I'm joined by Helen Lederer, comedian, writer and actor and now the founder of the Comedy Women in Print Prize. Hi Helen, thanks for joining us. Very lovely to be here. Amongst all the doom and gloom, you've actually come in to give us some good news. Yes. Which is about your prize. The Comedy Women in Print Prize you've set up to give more support and exposure for female comedy writing, and it's for novels. It's a prize prize. uh, that is offered to funny female fiction, Mm -hmm. meaning novels. So that's the category. Mm -hmm. And the prize exists 
to shine a light on you know a category there's a prize called the woman's prize for female fiction which is amazing and they've been going for 16 years and I've judged for them and slightly gave me the idea that you know it is possible with with enough organization to actually promote and generate this area of work of literature the people who enter the authors who enter have to have written a novel mm -hmm. and there are so many people out there who have mm. so and we've got so many entries mm -hmm. in the first year so it's to say you, if you have a comedy novel out there and you'd like to enter comedy women in print then please enter and then for the published comedy women in print we're saying to the publishers hey enter your published author because if they win it would be great to celebrate their win mm. and then there's a long list and a short list so the whole exercise really is yes there's a prize but more importantly <laughs> comedy female fiction wit with women mm -hmm. has not received the literary prizes that exist on the literary canvas mm. there are many prizes out there and there was one prize the pg woodhouse prize for comedy literature And I think there's, I don't remember the statistics, but, you know. I think it's three women have won it in the last 18 years. Is that right? Go. Yes, three women in the last 18 years. And I was nominated. <laughs> that's the only time I've ever been nominated for anything in my life. I'm not a winner. That's not my thing, but that's fine. But again, that informed me. So mm -hmm. the combination of being nominated for this comedy literary prize And knowing about the Women's Prize for Female Fiction, I thought, but there's nothing for comedy fiction. And I need to stay away from stand-up uh, for this prize because, of course, you know, that stand-up's looked after. There are wonderful people doing that. That's not what this is about. Mm. There's a gap in the market and there are many writers out there and it's just bringing something else to the table. Absolutely. So the the prize is it's a £5,000 book deal for the unpublished category and the runner-up, there's an MA from the University of Hertfordshire. Mm, yes. And then in the published, published category, there's a £2,000 yeah. prize. That's right. Yeah, exactly right. We're very, very lucky to have Harper Fiction giving uh, five grand for the publishing deal. And also we have King of Soho giving the £2,000 for the published prize. And it's people like this out there wanting to support and sort of bringing together this this amazing group of what the Writers Guild gave us some money, Pegasus Retirement Homes, Telegraph are our media partner mm. and the rest it's me. <laughs> and I look forward to the day when I can get back to my book. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, we're going to have to have a big party and just only invite sponsors. I don't know where they hang out. They probably hide <laughs> when they see me coming. This started as an idea four years ago and that's why it's quite interesting looking at people who have an idea and then you know you can have an idea and then forget about it mm. or just be like a dog at a bone and crack on so I did this and now it it's real so there's no running away and I launched it when I was doing the Edinburgh Festival in the summer and I hadn't been up there for 14 years so already trauma number one like going back <laughs> on stage going oh my god can I do this can I even remember what I'm saying obviously I couldn't but it was quite fun just being a bit existential just going do you know what I've got no plans I just want to know if I can do some stand-up and that was it like no future no past just that so that was okay then we launched the prize we, we launched the website and I forgot to do stuff and now we are 
absolutely in business. It's quite simple. There are two categories. But because we're coming up to the entries closing on the 28th, obviously there's loads and loads of queries, like I've done this, I've done that, am I eligible? And obviously if it was down to me, I'd just go, can you just take your prize now? Here's a prize. But, I, you know, being a person who, as a, a writer, performer, whatever, has rejection written in my DNA. So it's very hard to to look at fellow people seeing an opportunity and obviously you want to make it the best and the easiest but it, there's one prize we have a publisher on board we have the University of Hertfordshire giving an MA to the runner up if they want one I mean mm-hmm. they might they probably they may have one already you know but it's there mm-hmm. and then we're shining a light on the published category because there's so much as you know female funny fiction that and it just the prize didn't exist for novels for fiction just to get to July in the winner's event would be amazing. And then, you know, there's hopes for next year. But I've noticed as a person who um, has to do creative stuff myself, I haven't been able to do stuff recently. So I'm waking up at five in the morning worrying about it. But I've just got to go, well, it's happening and more can be achieved than not. It's 2019. Surely things must be looking up for female comedy novelists. Did you not feel that was the case or or is it just it's out there, but you just wanted to showcase it? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. There's more and more women on every canvas and more and more women stand ups. And and I've learned actually through doing this so much self-published female funny fiction. We don't have a category for that. It's all very controversial. But, you know, God, uh, God willing, next year there will be. There's so much content out there and it's not the people aren't producing it. It's just that. I don't think they've got the recognition or the respect. And the idea is just to create something that's quite classy, if you like, uh, if you use that word sort of euphemistically. But it's smart and foolproof and will just add something to what is already there. But I think women are quite rightly becoming more and more active. And wit is such a a powerful way, Mm. isn't it, of... Getting your voice heard without annoying people, (laughs) basically. And so why not harness that? Absolutely. You've got a bunch of judges involved in it, and one of them is friend of the show, Marion Keys, who is herself a very, very funny woman indeed. Yes. How did she get involved in this? Well, I asked her. (laughs) If you don't ask, you don't get. Mm -hmm. And I asked two wonderful women way back, I think about three years ago, and I was a great, still am a great admirer of them, but... When people say no, you have to go, okay, well, people have to say no. I say no to things. That's good to say no. But also I wasn't ready. I didn't have all the things in the pot that I had now. So I think it's a culmination to get someone of Marion's class and ability and warmth. I mean, what a lovely woman, Mm -hmm. as you know. But we just had more. And so it was easier to say yes, I think, than no. Mm -hmm. And then bit by bit, we've just got more and more, and and this is how we are. But at the very beginning, loads of people have got really good ideas, and people have got to be discerning. And until it's tangible and real, it's quite understandable that people wouldn't sort of come on board. I can't quite believe it's actually happening, because I was at a meeting at the Posh Publishers Hub of Fiction around a table, and I was thinking, oh, my law, this is, yeah, it's happening now. There was like 10 people in the room all doing jobs. But I found really good-hearted people because they do believe that this is worth doing. So they've done it for nothing. Mm. And and that's where you find people, because I'm doing it for nothing. Obviously, I couldn't ask for sponsorship 
if it was a paid job for me. But then you meet other people who go, yeah, this is really good, let's do it. And mm. then you have fun. And the idea is to be really inclusive and positive. But we would like a sponsor <laughs> next year as well. So if you're listening, uh, <laughs> potential sponsors, yeah. you know what to do. So, Helen, you've worked with some of the most well-known women in British comedy. The, the obvious names to drop are Dawn French, Jennifer Saunders. Jennifer Saunders is not herself a novelist, I don't think, although Dawn has yes. written a few novels. Yes. Whose comedy writing have you been most inspired by over the years? Well, yeah, I think it's just that I'm very, very old. (laughs) So that when you get this age, you look back, you can't remember what you've done. And you just think, well, in 34 years or whatever, I will have done a few things. And somehow I've just kept going. But the whole nature of our business, isn't it? Freelance, as we call it, is, you know, there can be times when you're not sort of getting onto a set and doing a glamorous job. But the rest of the time you're doing something else. But I have always loved writing because as a stand-up, I obviously wrote my material mm. so and wrote really bad poems age 10, so I've always written. But the people I've bumped, yeah, I've worked with, Dawn's written great novels. I mean, that's something I think she always wanted to do, so it's great that one is able to do what you want to mm. do. What booming privilege. I like Muriel Spark, you see, and I know everyone thinks of uh, Prime Miss Jean Brodie, but I've been reviewing a few books, partly talking about Quip, and you just think there's so much mm. witty female fiction out there. Just that kind of... Um, oh, gosh, yeah. Isn't there? And, yeah. and just that kind of sly, wry narrative voice that you connect with mm. as a reader. And you just think there's so much, and it's a joy. And then, you know, there, there are books that, are, for me, are more try-hard or don't speak to me. Mm. And But that's, again, that's comedy, isn't it? I'm not everybody's cup of tea, and, and you know... That's painful. But we can't be because comedy is so particular, Mm. isn't it? And it's the same on the page. I was always a big reader when I was a kid. And I remember reading, I don't know if you've heard of her, Anne Fine. I used to read when I was was tiny. tiny. Yeah, I used to, uh, what was the book? Bill's New Frock and Crummy Mummy and Me and things like that. They were fantastic. Right, yes. I I think maybe that's the general, Anne Fine. I'm trying she to wrote remember. loads of books. She wrote loads of young adult fiction yes. as well and things like that. Yes, before young adult was, as, mm. as, as quite rightly... Goggle Eyes, I think Goggle Eyes. So the reason you liked her is that she didn't patronise you and she connected with you. And, and she's, she's funny. Bad. She was very witty and I remember... <laughs> yes. it, and it was quite, you know, I guess it is quite sophisticated mm. humour for like an eight-year-old necessarily yes. to understand. But you're right, she didn't patronise. no. She didn't patronise the reader, and yeah, she was up there. Though I, I, I would probably find an Anne Fine novel at home if I was to look on my bookshelf. Madame Doubtfire, which became Mrs. <gasps> Doubtfire, of course, Clever. the film. Look at that! What what a genius thing! Yeah. And then another genius person uh, options it, makes it into a very successful film. I think my daughter would have read Anne Fine, but that is an example on a part that's interesting. We started with Muriel Spark. That there are writers like that who are witty, feisty connect make you feel uh, not alone and make you feel a bit naughty mischievous mischief is is so important isn't it just saying that thing that nobody else is going to say that's comedy again on the page you know Uh, you have to kind of go there don't you so the deadline for entries is february the 28th which is 
next week. <laughs> so, could you just write a novel? Have you could bring the dust it I've off? Got, I've got an idea. I don't know if I can finish it by the 30th of Do March. it. Do it. Stay up all night. So where can we find out more information about how to enter? It's um, you put uh, www in and then you go Comedy Women in Print and it comes up and it's a website, Comedy Women in Print altogether. And uh, hopefully, you know, when we announce long lists and short lists, again, there'll be interest. And then hopefully we'll go into year two and year three and expand the categories. That's the aim. And you'll have to come back and tell us all about it in May when you announce the winner. (laughs) When I've got the money. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And what are you up to? Anything else in the pipeline for you at the moment? At the moment, it's waking up at five o'clock in the morning, worrying about quip or just thinking, what (laughs) what email have I not answered? Sort of, I've become a kind of admin person, which is not my good thing, because I was once a social worker for a very short period of time, and I was so bad. I remember my team leader asked me into the office, said, Helen, you can either leave or you could leave immediately. That's how bad I was. <laughs> so being a, I can't wait. I'm hoping for a radio series. I'm waiting on that. I can't wait to write a comedy memoir. The second novel, I want to rewrite. I just want to get back into that. Obviously, with the acting jobs, if they come in, that's great. But I don't hold my breath. I do my own stuff. Are you on the Twitters or anything like that? Oh, yes. I'm on the Twitter. I think it's just my name at uh, the thing and Helen Lederer I'm on the Twitter and I'm even on the Instagram but that just has to be photographs doesn't it you mustn't say too much because that's a bit (laughs) desperate Helen thank you so much for joining us thank you Hello, we are joined by Hallie Rubenhold, social historian and author of The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper. Hallie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So hundreds of books have been written about Jack the Ripper, but this is the first full-length biography to have been written about Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Jane Kelly, who are the five women murdered in 1888, presumed by the same hand. Yes. Why have the women been ignored? Oh, that's a very good question. Because it's much more interesting to try to solve the mystery. And it's something we've been obsessed with as a culture, as a society, for 130 years. Absolutely. Jack has sort of morphed from being this terrifying killer to become some sort of lovable anti-hero of old London town. Well, he's mysterious, you know. And the thing is, along with Jack the Ripper comes all of these kind of tropes and images of, you know, the swirling fog, the top hat, the cape, you know, disappearing down dark alleyways. You know, we're so obsessed as a culture with this malevolent being, with this evil person. You know, you often hear him mentioned in the same breath as, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein, but they forget that Jack the Ripper was a real person and he killed real people. Mm -hmm. And almost everything we think we know about his canonical victims is wrong. So I'm going to throw it out to the gang because I am here with Hannah. Hello. And Jen. All right. What do you know about Jack the Ripper's victims? They were ladies of the night, Sex workers. Hallie, over to you. Oh, boy. This is the interesting thing because, you know, you throw this out to a room full of people and you ask them the question, what do we know about Jack the Ripper's victims? And the first thing they always say is exactly what you said, which is, well, they were prostitutes and Jack the Ripper killed prostitutes. My book actually delves into this and there is virtually no evidence at all to substantiate the claim that three of the five 
ever worked in prostitution at all. This is brand new information. <laughs> no, really, because that is all you ever hear about, isn't it? Yeah. 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 The definition of prostitute was quite different and malleable, I yeah, think. Yeah, completely. Just any woman that was out on the street <laughs> well, by herself. pretty much. Yeah. That was it. Thanks, Gladstone. Yeah, well, exactly. But, you know, more to the point, thank you, Metropolitan Police, because they actually came head-to-head with this problem in 1887, which is the year before the Ripper murders happened, when a young woman, a seamstress by the name of Elizabeth Cass, was arrested because she was out on the streets. She was out on Regent Street. She'd gone to buy a pair of gloves and look at the Queen's Jubilee illuminations in the summer. And a police officer kind of felt her collar and said, you're a prostitute. And then an entire trial followed in the wake of this. What happened was it turned out she wasn't a prostitute at all. The police had to very quickly redefine, or or rather define more clearly, what a prostitute was. A prostitute was a woman who self-identified as a prostitute, which is very interesting, you know, vis-a-vis how we regard sex workers today. And, you know, this idea that, you know, you can't just point a finger at a woman and say, you're a whore, therefore, you know, you sell your body on the streets and blah, blah, blah. There also had to be somebody who could attest to the fact that she was selling her body to them, selling sexual favours to them. None of these criteria could be applied to the victims of Jack the Ripper, according to police regulations. Apart from Mary Jane Kelly. Mary Jane Kelly, who self-identified as a sex worker, Mm. who there is tons of evidence uh, that she was as well. She left an absolute trail of evidence that this is what she did. It's interesting because the Two other killers who've acquired the moniker Ripper after Jack the Ripper, I think partly because they also killed who was allegedly prostitutes, the Yorkshire Ripper, Mm. and then Stephen Wright in Ipswich was called the Ipswich Ripper. It's exactly the same case with those. Not all of those women were working in prostitution, Mm -hmm. and yet they always get called, all of them are prostitutes. Is that right? The the Ipswich ones, were they not? Yeah, I mean, Anna Lee Alderton had recently come out of prison and apparently was just one night was there back out on the street. Mm. I mean, it wasn't like she was regularly working as a prostitute. It was she was in a situation that evening, it would appear. And the other ones, mothers do argue that a lot of them were trying to get out of sex work or weren't, had not Mm. previously been working in sex work. And it's mentioned in Hallie's book, actually. You you do a quote from the judge in the Suffolk... Do they they call him the Suffolk Strangler as well? Yes, they call him the Suffolk Strangler. Suffolk Strangler case who asked the jury to just not take into account what the women's lives were like and what drugs they were taking and to bear in mind that they still, no matter what, did not deserve to be killed. Exactly. It's astonishing that that still needs saying. Exactly. Yeah. In this day and age, we're very wedded to this notion, and it's a holdover from the Victorian era, you know, bad women deserve to be punished. And these were... In the Victorian way of conceptualizing the world, bad women. They were women who no longer lived at home with their husbands. They were women who were alcoholics. A woman without a home and a woman without a family was superfluous. What was she? Here these women were out on the street. Well, even worse. Well, what could she be doing? She could only be getting up to no good. Because what sort of woman finds herself outside at night alone in a bad place? part of town well she must be a prostitute 
It was such a catch-22 situation as well, which becomes clear in reading The Five, and that if you were married, which four out of five were or had been married and you had children, but if you lost your husband or your home, you're out on the street. The thing for a woman to survive was she had to attach herself to another man. Yes. And therefore, that was when the definition prostitute yeah, would be put on because her. because she was having sex outside of marriage. The Victorian era conflated all of these misdemeanors, sexual misdemeanors. So, I mean, it's amazing to think. So if you look at, you know, they had reformatories for fallen women that you could go to. So, for example, if you were a prostitute, if you had sex out of marriage, if you were a man's mistress, if you were a victim of incest, and if you were a victim of rape, you were also eligible to go into one of these homes. So it gives you an idea. The Victorian mind conflated everything. A woman who had a lover, a woman who had sex out of marriage, was just as much of a whore as a woman who sold herself on the street. You know, and the fact that even incest and rape victims were considered damaged, they weren't considered innocent, and they needed to be rehabilitated, tells you everything you need to know. Victorian London was this world of poverty, homelessness, and incredible misogyny. It seemed pretty much, from reading The Five, that the worst thing that you could be was a poor woman. Yeah, it really was. Destitution was just always around the corner. Yeah, it was. It was always a possibility. And again, you know, you brought up the point that if a woman not only found herself in compromised circumstances financially, you know, but if she found herself without a man, I mean, what was she going to do? She, Society was literally constructed so that a woman could not be the main breadwinner. She could not bring in a really good income and support her family. It was impossible. The jobs that were available for working class women paid so very little. They paid virtually nothing. They were backbreaking and you know a lot of it was sweatshop work or was cleaning and it was very menial then again you know we we are talking about working class women with with very little education at the same time it's interesting to note that if you were a middle class woman you might have more opportunities you could work as as a secretary there are women entering journalism by the late 1880s, 1890s as well. So there was that opening up, but working class women were the majority because the the majority were poor in the cities. You just touched on the theme of education, which is really interesting because another thing that was dispelled for me is that all of the women, all of the five, were educated. Yeah. They'd been sent by hook or by crook to some sort of school. Yeah. And had a lot more schooling than their contemporaries. Yeah, a lot of them did. Catherine Eddowes, for example, went to the Dowgate Charity School, which was a charity school right near St. Paul's. She had been selected specifically for that school. We know she was literate and, you know, they would have learned things like music and things like that. Well, she wrote ballads. Well, we were, we we are fairly sure that she did because the man she travelled with, well, her partner, Thomas Connolly, was said to be the man who wrote the ballads and they sang them together. But I discovered that he was actually illiterate. So the only person who could actually be doing the writing of those two was Catherine. Yeah. (laughs) Given how much or how passionately some people seem to feel about, you know, Jack the Ripper. Are you expecting people, ripperologists or whatever they call themselves, to come back to you and say, no, well, I've already had it. Have you? Yeah, I've already had it. I've got hate mail already. Nobody's read the book yet. 
Bear in mind. <laughs> Nobody's really they, They're not going to let that stop them. No. I have and it wasn't me. Uh-huh. I just like to that yeah. yeah, so I've had hate mail. I've had messages on social media. I've had trolls telling me, how dare you say that? Everybody knows they are. It's well proven in documents. Well, it's not well proven in documents, actually. We have newspaper reports. We have sensationalised Victorian newspaper reports that tell us about these things. We don't have documents that tell us. You know, we don't have any corroborating evidence to tell us. I think it's so interesting because if you were to call a man a thief, for example, and say, well, you know, he lived in a house where we know there were lots of thieves that lived there. And and so, well, we think, you know, he must have been a thief because he lived in a house. And then to call him a thief for 130 years seems incredibly unjust when there is really no evidence. And yet we are totally comfortable with doing it for these women. Even on the police and coroner reports, there wasn't enough evidence for them to put it as their occupation, right? That's right. The death certificates at the end of the coroner's inquest, when they had heard all of the information about these women that they cared to hear, and there would have been much more that they could have if they were interested. Every single case, with the exception of Mary Jane Kelly, the women, when it listed who they were and their occupation, it listed widow of, wife of, single woman, and then Mary Jane Kelly said prostitute. So there wasn't enough evidence to actually sub- to substantiate any of those claims, to actually say, yes, this is what they did as a profession. That's really interesting. It is really interesting. Where did your fascination in these stories come from? I've written a lot about 18th century prostitution, and I've written about uh, women who have kind of fallen on the wrong side of virtue, as they would say. I wanted to see what was comparable in the 19th century, and I thought, well, who were the best-known prostitutes in the 19th century? Top five. Yeah, top top five. (laughs) And then what amazed me, I mean, it literally blew my mind, knowing how sex work operated within its various parameters and its its system and, you know, what evidence you expect to find. And then starting to look at these five women and finding none of that, none of that, I suddenly thought, oh, my God, I'm really on something here because nobody has ever really picked apart this belief that they were. And when you do, it's this, this statement that they were prostitutes just falls apart. Just pull completely. on that thread and the whole bit yeah. of fabric comes apart. Completely. What were the big surprises that you learned while researching the book? Oh, gosh, there were, there were so many. One of the most interesting things that I learned, I mean, it was a real kind of moment of discovery, was when I traced Annie Chapman's time in Speltthorne Sanatorium, which is where she dried out. Speltthorne was one of the first rehab centres, which was opened in the late 19th century, for middle-class women with alcohol problems. And she spent a year there. There's a letter that was written by her sisters that was printed in a newspaper. And it said that, you know, she spent a year basically drying out in this place. And Mm -hmm. then I went through kind of a list of these places and through process of elimination, arrived at Speltthorne as possibly being one of these. I then called up the Order of Anglican Nuns who took over Spelthorne, I think, in the in the 1880s at some point, and asked, just on a kind of whim, if they had any of the material that existed. And the librarian said, yes, we have the ledger books. 
And so I drove out to Wantage and um, looked through them. And sure enough, there was, you know, Mrs. Chapman arrived today from Windsor. Please tell me you pumped your fist. I did. I did. I I, I, I went, yes, I knew it. Let's showcase champagne talk now. And I went, oh, no, that's inappropriate. (laughs) Where can we find out more about you and about the book, please, Holly? <laughs> well, the book is on sale on Amazon and it will be in all good bookshops as well from the 28th of February. And I have a website and that's www.hallyrubinhall.com. And trolls, don't bother to get in touch with her. Don't bother getting in touch. Well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also on Twitter and Facebook as well. What's your handle? It's just Hallie Rubenhold. Hallie, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Hi, Hannah here. Just so as you know, we've got a load of great interviews coming your way in the coming weeks and months. I went up to the part frozen north to meet writer Lisa Holdsworth to talk about the complicated life and early death of playwright Andrea Dunbar. Jen met the brilliant Jessica Hines to chat about her new film, The Fight. And all three of us went to the set of HBO's Gentleman Jack, I shit you not, and grabbed some time with its creator and director, Sally Wainwright. If you want to make sure you don't miss out on any of these chats with brilliant women, please subscribe, either on Acast or iTunes. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we can actually afford to buy a pie at an FA Cup match, which is just as well because all this rocking with the patriarchy is hungry work. And I'm talking about the SSE Women's FA Cup, of course, the fifth round of which was played over the weekend. But you might not have heard about that, what with top quality teams like Wolves and Blackpool in action in the men's fifth round, also over the weekend. Those matches saw victories for West Ham, Man City, Reading, Manchester United, Liverpool, Durham and Chelsea. Chelsea, who beat Arsenal 3-0 to knock them out of the tournament. I mention this match in particular because it caught my attention while looking on social media that this match was shown on the Women's FA Cup Facebook page. It may interest you to know that a comparable level of draw, Chelsea versus Manchester United, on the men's side will be broadcast on BBC One, or was broadcast by the time you listen to this. But on the plus side, I saw lots of women I follow on Twitter commenting on how they took their entire families to matches over the weekend, with the whole shebang costing them less than 20 quid. That's right, two adults and two kids could have attended that Chelsea versus Arsenal match for 12 quid. And while we're on that subject, it can't have escaped your notice that there's a Women's World Cup happening this summer, and there are a bunch of international friendlies prior to that. England will be taken on Denmark, Spain, New Zealand and Canada, and those are all taking place on this fair isle. Tickets for all those matches are £10 for adults and £1 for concessions. And you can see Scotland women's team in action in the Algarve Cup against Canada and Iceland. Admittedly, that is in Portugal, so a bit more expensive, but sod it, go, buy the pie. Some good news for sport announced last week that UK Sport, the governing body responsible for funding elite level sport in the UK, will soften its no compromise approach to sports funding after the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. And for those of you who aren't familiar with my rants about this, that's their no win, no fee policy, as in we're not giving you money unless you can get us a medal. An approach which is, in my view, bollocks and in no way in line with the message we should be wanting to teach kids about sport or indeed life in general. This announcement comes as a result of a public consultation. 61% of responses said the current approach is the right one, but it has been acknowledged that the strict policy basically risks eradicating some sports. And I'm talking about sports like basketball and handball. So the focus is still going to be on medals, and fair play, I do like those, but with a bit more consideration for some of those other sports. 
I think it's probably increasingly difficult to justify the approach when you see the issues that have been off-discussed on sports such as cycling and athletics in the last year or so. And I'm hoping it's going to mean more money for team sports, again, like basketball or handball, that have genuine growth potential and more participation by women. So while we're on the subject of sporting excellence... Tip of the hat to Laura Muir, who set a new British indoor mile record last week, which is very exciting as we look forward to the next Olympics, which is just 18 months away now. And I also want to say big up to Australia's top sporting federations, including cricket, rugby and football, who've all signed up to the Pathway for Equality report by the Male Champions of Change Institute, detailing a milestone-based approach for achieving pay quality between male and female athletes, which is obviously absolutely huge. UK sporting institutions take note, we are coming for you. That's me for this week. I'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with more sporting news. In the meantime, please do give me a shout on Twitter if you want to talk to me about this, or indeed the best course of action to revive my dwindling houseplants. I am at Inspiragen. Coming up on this week's Sunday Chops, I'll be chatting to Mariam Khan, editor of the new book It's Not About the Burqa, Muslim Women on Faith, Feminism, Sexuality and Race. And it is a fascinating chat. We talk about all sorts of things, including representation, mainstream white feminism, and why it all needs to change. If you want to listen, make sure you keep your ears peeled on Sunday. But also, if you haven't done so already, please do hit subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And then everything will just come magically to you and you won't even have to do anything. You're welcome. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you do this week? This week I did 2002's Lilo and Stitch, which I realise now I have previously been calling Lilo and Stitch. And me, yeah. Um, and that's not what it's called. It's spelled Lilo, isn't it? It okay. is. I don't know if Americans have Lilos. Do they call them Lilos? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, they it... probably call them inflatables, maybe. If anyone knows the answer to this, yeah. please do let us know. We're all ears. Absolutely. It's got a cast that I didn't really recognise any names in it, except for Ving Rhames. He was the only one whose name Tia I recognised. Carrera. No, who is she? She is Cassandra in Wayne's World. Oh, OK. Who played the sister, whose name got I've instantly you. forgotten. OK. Well, she's a, she is also in it. And there's some other people that I didn't know. A lot of them had, like, what appeared to be three names. It was another one of those. Well, I think a lot of them were actually Hawaiian, mate. Were they? Hmm. I think so. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because one one of the first things I thought was, having seen Moana, this looked, like, not great on Hawaii and its <laughs> and its people. But I suppose if I had watched them in the, the order of which they were made, I might have thought more about it. I hadn't seen it before, obviously, had you? I had not seen it before, but and obviously, it? well, because I'm being Mickey you had and to. someone has to say something. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did. I did watch it. Mm. Great. So did you like it? I'm going to be honest and say that I don't really know. I don't feel very well. I didn't feel very well last night. What I wanted to do was be asleep last night. And what I was doing was watching this film. And I feel like the setup was great. And I felt like it was a bit madcap. And that it should have been funny. Yeah. And that it should have been fun. And it should have been quite sweet. But it wasn't any of those things. And I don't know if it wasn't any of those things because it wasn't any of those things. Or I don't know if it wasn't any of those things because I wasn't feeling it because I don't feel very well. So, in truth, 
I kind of don't, I don't know. A lot of people have told me this was really good. My dear, a lot of people told me Inside Out was really good, so there you have it. Uh, I mean, I think really good is strong. <laughs> Should we talk about the yeah, setup? Yeah, tell us what Okay, happened. so in space, which you, you're not expecting, a mad professor makes this thing called 626, which is a creature which is very intelligent, but basically creates chaos everywhere it goes. So like you and me, Jen. <laughs> the professor is taken up in front of some sort of committee of people who say you, you're a mad bastard <laughs> and this 626 this thing gets locked up but he manages to escape and he ends up crashing his stolen spaceship into Hawaii where he's hit by a truck taken to an animal shelter who mistake him for a dog and he's adopted by a little girl called Lilo who is being raised by her older sister because her parents are dead, Natch. Now, are they dead? Well, I'm thinking they're dead because she keeps a photograph of them. They're not there, for one thing, and she keeps a photo of them and talks about them in the past tense. I assumed they were dead because it's Disney's way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And they weren't around. But did you watch it right to the very end? I watched it till they were showing, like, the photographs. Yeah, there was a photo at the end that... Made me a little bit confused. Oh, really? There's a photo at the end with, I mean, maybe this is a spoiler alert, with them and an unknown man and woman who I assume are her parents and with Stitch. Okay. I don't know then. But, yeah, throughout, I thought they were dead. Yeah, they're certainly not around. No. So her sister is attempting to raise her, but social services are on her back in the form of the probably the least looking person who's ever worked for social services <laughs> who has a really bonkers name which I can't remember Cobra Bubbles that's it mm. and he he's being played by Ving Rhames and obviously having this creature that creates chaos that they've mistaken for a dog isn't helping her case well it's already quite chaotic isn't it yeah basically meanwhile the space people send down the mad professor and then this other thing called Pleakley to try and catch the creature which is now called Stitch mm-hmm. because of some really bonkers thing about mosquitoes that I didn't understand but does actually, it does explain it in the very last mm. line. And then just some odd selection of things happen. The little girl decides that to make it an Elvis impersonator which I have to say I don't understand. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's one She's of, mad keen on Elvis, though, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, but it's one of the things that makes me think that it's not good on the people of Hawaii. And then they've gone, what do you think of when you think of Hawaii, Elvis Presley? And you're like, oh, you think of a white man that made a film about Hawaii mm. rather than think about any Hawaiian culture at I was, all. Yeah, I was a bit baffled by it, but I, I did understand the reference because my dad frequently likes to... Just sing a bar of rock a hula, rock, rock <laughs> No one knows why. Anyway. <laughs> and then they go surfing a lot, which clearly is Hawaiian. Hawaiian. <laughs> so that's, that's something. Around that point, which is around the 50-minute mark, it started to grow on me a bit more as a film. And I don't know if that's because the drugs were kicking in or I was losing the will to live. Because what I have to say is that the animation in this is really Saturday morning cartoon-style animation. Shit. Those waves were shit. Which, bearing in mind, this is 2002. Yeah. It looks like something that was made in the 80s. It looks yeah. really cheap. This film, incidentally, 
nominated for an Oscar, which I am well surprised by. Aren't all Disney films nominated for Oscars, though? It must have been a bleak year that year, if if that's what the best animated film was. Um, but I guess, like, there's so few that are actually sort of mainstream box office whatever. Disney are always in with a shot, aren't they? I suppose. Did they win it? I don't think so. It said nominated. I think it would have said win. Yeah. So there's a couple of odd things. We're supposed to feel really sympathetic to the sister because she's struggling. And I think, actually, this film appeals to older kids as well because maybe they see themselves in in the role of the sister and she's trying to keep her family together and, and all of that. You know, great. But at the same point, the key moment of it, when everything goes really badly wrong, she does leave a small child by herself in a house. When she goes off to go to the job interview, and that's when the house is actually destroyed. Oh, right, yeah. She has left her on her own. Yeah. And there's no clear explanation to why she would have not just taken her with her and said, wait outside, other than to serve the plot of the house being destroyed. So there is quite a lot of of bad parenting. Some, like, truly bonkers stuff happens. At one point, somebody drives a tanker into a volcano. (laughs) I don't know, is the truth. I genuinely don't know if I like this or not. Because I, d- I just don't feel well enough to formulate an opinion. Jen? I mean, when I started off, I was like, this is bleak as fuck. Because she's weird. Yeah. Lilo. She's an odd child. She, I mean, she's quite young and she really fucking likes Elvis Presley for a start, <laughs> which is odd. I can understand her commitment to peanut butter, which is uh, something that emerges in the early scenes, but yeah. then never spoken of again. The social worker is the most implausible social worker ever and also unprofessional as fuck he just shows up whenever he likes yeah. doesn't he aren't he supposed to is it like a landlord you're supposed to give like yeah. 24 hours notice yeah. or some shit yeah i don't know towards the end I, I mean there were a few bits that i actually lolled at i did lol when he was on the beach when when stitch is on the beach being elvis presley yeah. that did make me lol and then at the end there's like a montage at the end when everything's happy again spoiler alert where he puts the big sister's bikini on his ears yeah that's it actually that did make me laugh yeah (laughs) that made me lol yeah i don't know i thought it was all right the bit where he goes and decides to wait for his family Mm. and he takes the book the ugly duck thing with him and he goes and waits for his family and then somebody turns up and goes you don't have a family mate you were just created that's actually quite yeah quite sad i suppose that's something interesting well he learns a lesson doesn't he yeah basically, because he's been created with no purpose other than to create chaos. And if he can't create chaos, then what is the point of him? Yeah. It's interesting that the family has the motto, nobody gets left behind, which I believe is the same motto as the Marines. It's whatever, (laughs) whoever the ones are that are in Black Hawk Down. That's what they say all the time in it. Nobody gets left behind. And yet people do frequently get left behind. (laughs) Exactly that. I thought it was interesting that they have... Well, it's essentially a sort of romance in it, but it doesn't... It doesn't dominate proceedings. It doesn't dominate. There's a guy that she fancies, and he clearly fancies her. This is the older sister, called David. And he hangs around with them a lot. But it's not resolved whether or not they actually get together or whether they stay friends or anything. I think, again, in the photos, I think the photos imply that certainly the friendship has continued. Yeah. And he becomes part of their funny little family. But but you still don't know whether it's a romance or a friendship there, do you? No. Which, again, I think is nice because it doesn't dominate yeah. proceedings, like you say. Um, it wasn't awful, but that said, 
it wasn't something that made me ever want to watch it again. Was it fundamentally racist <laughs> or sexist? I don't know that it was fundamentally sexist. To be honest, the head of the Federation in space was a woman. Yeah. The two lead characters were women. Yeah. Or girls. No, I don't think it struck me as sexist. No. I don't know about racist because, like I say, apart from the fact it's got volcanoes and surfing in it, it didn't say Hawaii to me particularly. No. But that said, having never been to Hawaii, I don't really know what does say Hawaii. The Rock. The Rock, yeah. Dr. Gro- Bounty Hunter. <laughs> Grass skirts. There's a few of those in it. There were, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a bit reductionist, potentially, for the people of Hawaii. But Yeah. She has a bit of a funny shape, her sister, wasn't she? She was a bit, actually. I she did notice really, that. She had really, really meaty legs. Yes. I did notice that. Which and is no bad thing. Because no. women do have... Some women have big legs. She sort of, I thought, looked like the shape of... An actual a, person. A human. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which was is a bit different for Disney. So, yeah. well done for that, Disney. Yeah, and the thing itself, Stitch or 626, whatever you want to call it, it wasn't like Gurgi or anything. It didn't irritate me a great nope. deal. It, I mean, it wasn't sweet. I liked you know? him less when he started talking, if I'm honest. But... Yeah, but he was no, he was obviously he was no Gurgi, but he was no Baby Groot either. No. He was somewhere between the he was two. He's a complex character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He had a lot going on. Okay, so what score are you going to give it? I'm going to give it three. Now we're going to have to talk about this. Why does this get three compared to last week's offering, Brother Bear, which you wanted to give two? I don't, I don't know. I told you I was... I, I, I don't know. I don't know. All right, so three what? Three Lemsips. <laughs> <laughs> three Lemsips out of five. Really? I think if I'd have five Lemsips, I would have fucking loved it. Well, there you go, guys. That's that's what you need to do. If you want to yeah. watch this, more caffeine. Oh, I don't know. I'm just I'm just so glad we're near the end. There's only one of these to go. I'm being perhaps I'm being over happy with my scores. Perhaps it's just the joy of knowing that I've only got. When I watch Hercules next week, I could actively choose in my life never to watch a Disney film ever again. And will you make that choice? Possibly, possibly. So that's it, guys. One more. One more. Mickey will be back in she time will. for that one, so she won't miss the dramatic ending. <laughs> oh, yeah. You'll see the fireworks from wherever you are. I've got plans. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a cake with Mickey Mouse's face on it? No. It's much less good than that. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.